For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. telling his brothers to try and immigrate to the United States. I was not fascinated by America at all because um, I was very happy in India. I wanted to see more of North America. She did not want to bring a boy. Didn't want to take my two older sisters. I was picked. He had some knowledge that it is better to go abroad. I don't think he had any particular drive to come to America. To start off the series, we reflect on origins, where our stories come from, and how they begin. In our archives, we hear about many points of departure, from countries and places, to periods of time, to relationships with others. Altogether, these points of departure shape the migrations described in these stories. We listen to this collection of memories, keeping in mind the many origins from which we tell our histories. Let's listen. Do you remember the context of the decision as to why uh, your parents ultimately decided that you would leave Italy? Well, uh, I had an uncle. Uh, he was the youngest of my father's uh, uh, of my father's brothers. He had immigrated to the United States in the uh, 1950s, and uh, he was here uh, in the United States. And he would often uh, write to them and you know keep in contact with them. And knowing that they, you know, the brothers in Italy um, were having a difficult time, he would often send packages with uh, clothes and sometimes, uh, you know, cookies and food items. And many times he would also send money. And he was forever telling his brothers uh, to try and immigrate to the United States because life would be much better here. Uh, my dad w- and was always um, trying to, to do better for the family and he always uh, did want to go. 
his brothers, he had two other brothers, uh, they were all married also, and uh, they also wanted to immigrate. So at some point, they had made the decision that if uh, you know, they, he did the paperwork, that we were all immigrate. What were some of your feelings, um, perhaps in the weeks leading up to immigration uh, towards moving to the United States or maybe even the night before? How did you feel about this major change in your life? Well, it was a major change. I was very excited uh, for myself, you know, being young. Um, I guess probably I didn't even understand the ramifications of where we were going, how far it was. Uh, so I was very excited and looking forward to it as a new adventure for me. But uh, and my, my dad was also excited, obviously, because his brother was here. His two other brothers were, had already come in January, and they had already written to him and told him how great it was here. But however, my mother, she was not happy at all. She did not want to leave, and she was very resistant because all her sisters uh, were there uh, in, the, in the area where we were living, and she didn't have anybody here at all. Uh, she didn't want to leave. She felt that we were fine in Italy, and uh, she was very, very upset, and she didn't want to go. My dad convinced her uh, to come, and, uh, and I think what he had said is that uh, we were going to keep the house and to you know, go to the United States. Let's give it a try. We'll work a few months, you know, and uh, if we really don't like it and cannot adapt, we could always come back to our house, you know, here in Italy. And that was one of the reasons why they didn't sell it. We just heard Maria Fortino talk about the Fortino family's conflicting desires to migrate from Italy to the U.S. In this next set of clips with Tara Medatherty, Tony O'Reilly, and Mary Toomey, we want to keep thinking about the connections between family and migration. How do family histories and relationships form our movements? Let's keep thinking and listen closer. I was not fascinated by America at all because um, I was very happy in India. Uh, I had a very middle-class upbringing and um, I was a person who who's like who live in present and I'm kind of happy with whatever little I have so I like helping I like teaching so I did my studies I was teaching I was so happy and I would I would tell a, a, a minute also I never thought um, I would be here uh, getting married and coming here so I never thought of America I used to have uh, uh, I used to see TV and uh, world news I used to see this America something going on or whatever a little topic about America but I was not at all interested uh, because that never fascinated me Uh, uh, so kind of uh, very happy in India but uh, so I never thought I was I would come to America, but when uh, we I was as a arranged marriage. So when the proposal came and uh, my mother, father-in-law asked me, uh, so I are you ready to go to New York? I was like kind of oh this is not going to work because uh, where the hell the place is actually, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, then they were telling like you have to travel like. Uh, those times, I think, 18 to 20 hours. I think now it's much more easier. But uh, when I came at 2003, I think I even traveled 24 hours to come to U.S. So um, it's a place uh, you have to uh, come across seven seas to just reach this place. So I was like, really, am I going there? So I was I was not even sure that I'm coming here. But anyway, that's a destiny. I came here, uh, and it's kind of okay. Then, really, suddenly, I was like, I didn't know anything about this place. I didn't have a in a dream that I'm going to come here. So, then everything was new to me. I left home very young. I was a middle child. 
and uh, the place, the farm wasn't doing very well. So I, I didn't want to continue my schooling, so I left school very young. Mm -hmm. And I got away to Dublin, which would be the city about 70 miles away. I tricked my mother into getting away to the city, and I told her I was only going for a few months, and then I got a job there. And she thought, well, if he's got a job, leave him alone. He doesn't want to go back to school. And that's the way it kind of, it kind went of played from, out. Yeah, yeah, she had her own problems back home. From there, I went to London for a while, uh, about a year. I spent a year in London. And then my older brother, Frank, was getting married in Toronto, so he wanted me to be the best man. So my sister... Um, uh, we all we left from <coughs> from London to go to Toronto in 1972. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that when you came, you stayed? I stayed. I emigrated <coughs> at that point to Canada. You did. Yeah. And you were uh, 18 or 19. I was 19. Yeah. 19. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and how did you find Toronto? I mean, what what made you decide to stay? Well, I I wanted to uh, see more of North America, you know, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay there. I was kind of very, um, um, wild, if that would be the right, you know, I was young, I was wild, I was, you know, I, I can remember, um, the, you know, back in the, in the fifties and sixties, we didn't have electricity or running water in the house. I remember my father bringing home a radio for the first time, and really? turning it on in the corner, and you know, it's quite a, an exciting time to hear the radio, you know. I must, yeah. And oh. then TV came in, and we would see TV in the in the towns, and uh, um, we didn't have a TV, but then some neighbors had, and we would go there. Mm -hmm. So, not to go back too far, but when I got away, the Beatles had just you know, come on the scene, um, rock and roll and, you know, chubby checker or whoever. Back in know. the 60s. Yeah, right? back in the 60s. I so I felt like the world was just opening up, but it was just me opening up to, you know, to the to the new life. And I said, I want to see the world. And I that's why I made a decision one day mm -hmm. uh, to go to London and I left the next day. You did? Yeah. You're a spontaneous kind of a spontaneous, person. yeah, yeah. But that's the way to get it done, though. Yes, and I had a sister living in London at the time, the the one who was living in Toronto. Oh, Ka Kathleen, right? I didn't even bother to get her address in London. You knew you'd find her. I knew I'd find her somewhere. In, in, in a yeah, three days like later, London. I found her. <laughs> and you did find her. I did. Oh. Yeah, I had a general idea. So Toronto was the next on my world tour. And um, I didn't, I didn't like it that much. It was okay. Yeah. And then I started to visit, uh, you know, to the, to the states. We would go to Detroit, because it's just a train ride from yep. Toronto to yeah. Detroit. Well, I was going with a friend of mine who had a girlfriend there, and that's why we were going there. Yeah. And then I came into Buffalo, which would be only a hundred miles from Toronto, approximately. And I started to like the States and uh, and then wound up coming on down to New York. Now, when you came to New York, <clears throat> did you have anybody here? No, 
nobody. Because your brother and sister were Toronto, and the, and the other two were back in Ireland. That's right. So you came here on your own. On my own, didn't know anybody. And you were probably in your early 20s. I was just 20. Just 20. Mm-hmm. What was your first stop? Uh, Jackson Heights. Yeah. And why was that? Yeah. Well, I, we drove down um, to see an Irish football game which I didn't have much interest in, but the two guys that drove, they were Irish guys, and they wanted to go see this game. On uh, Back then, they would show the, the Irish football games in a movie theater on the big screen. So these guys couldn't wait to get here to, the, to see hmm. that, which wasn't really my interest, but I was just going along for the fun of it. <laughs> Before we listen to Mary Toomey, will tell a short history of the military involvements that compelled her and her family's migration from Ireland to the United States. We'll start from the Irish Revolutionary Period of the 1910s and 20s. Mary Toomey mentions the Troubles. Here, we're referring to a different era than the Troubles of Northern Ireland in the 1960s and 70s. During this earlier era, the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, engaged in protracted armed efforts to establish an Irish Republic independent from British colonial rule. They stood opposed by the British-backed Black and Tans in the Irish War of Independence. Since 1919, different factions of the IRA have continued to be active throughout the past century. How did it come to be that you were traveling here? Well, um, I'm one of nine, and our mother died when the oldest child was 12, and the youngest was two, and left a family. So uh, at the time, two months, and my mom was in hospital for two years before she died. She went for a back surgery and never came home. So... Uh, an aunt took me when I was four, so th- and that was about the age when my mother went to the, to the hospital. So she took me, she was my godmother, and she took me. And so I spent uh, several years with her. In, uh, my grandparents, my grandmother, my grandfather lived in the house, and I had two single uncles and two single aunts. They lived in the house. I came from a pro-IRA family, of course, because that's why, like, my uncles left, my uncle that came to this country, because at the time, going back to the 20s, my uncle was, my uncle and my dad were all involved at that time, and uh, so it was a very, um, was, uh, they tried to get my uncle out of the country because they were afraid that something would happen to him. A lot of men left at that time. My father-in-law left at that time too. But he spent some time in prison in Ireland, my father-in-law. That's the time of the Troubles. And he had a, a, a brother that was shot and killed in, um, right near his home by, um, by the Black and Tans. So they were very political in, in Cork. Tremendously, it was a hotbed at that time, and my my um, my father-in-law's family, you know, got rid of him, sent him into this country, you know, for his protection. A lot of families did that at that time. They had to kind. Of. So, my mother died when I was six, and I, of course I went back with my aunt, 
and my aunt eventually married a very very nice man and then she took me uh, with me with I, I went from her house from my grandparents house to my aunt's house and I lived there until nearly I came to this country and my aunt in this country did not want to bring a boy because at that time you had to sign up you had to you know go into the service if you were of a certain age and the draft was in it wasn't voluntary at that time so she didn't want to bring a boy because she didn't want to put you know him, him in that kind of a situation and she didn't want to take my my two older sisters were a year apart so she didn't want to take one of them from the other and my younger sister I suppose maybe she felt she was too young so I I was picked. That's it. You were very brave. I don't know whether it was brave or not, but I was, yeah, I suppose I was. I was a little bit, you know, I was that kind of a child who, you know, did not mind leaving home. I also knew probably that things were a lot better because I came from very poor circumstances. I mean, uh, we were in a small farm and nine little children without a mother, you know. It must have been very difficult. Oh yes, it was difficult. So I don't know, was I smart enough to know that, you know, it would be better here? Did I think about it? I don't know. I don't remember that. Along with Mary Toomey, Jagir Baines and Joey Tobacco tell migration stories that also connect family history to colonialism and military politics. First, we'll hear Jagir Baines talk about Zambia's formal independence from the United Kingdom, officially won by anti-colonial movements in 1964. He mentions that a particular strategy of the Zambian army to expel the British military presence in Zambia was to recruit Indian officers the independence movements in India having achieved Indian independence in 1947. Only a year prior, in 1946, the United States government withdrew its imposed sovereignty over the Philippines and set the terms of Philippine independence regarding U.S. military occupation, land and resource ownership, and Filipino migration to the U.S. Though he was born in Queens, Joey Tobacco mentions Philippine independence in recounting his father's migration. Starting with Jagir Baines, Let's listen closer. I was in Zambia from 1969 to 74 in the Zambian army on contract for three years. Before coming to Zambia, I was in the Indian army 20 years and my last unit was army headquarters and uh, I was the scientific assistant to the director of EME, that is Electrical Mechanical Engineers. The team from Zambia came to head, Army Headquarters to New Delhi and they selected me to come to Zambia on a contract to teach the automotive technology. Did you have to apply or did they stick you out? What happened? Zambia got independence in 1964 mm -hmm. and they were in a process to find the people from outside replacing Britishers. So they were all under British before oh, they got okay. the contract. Okay. So they came to they came to India in Army headquarters where I was stationed, and they called around. We were ten people they interviewed, mm -hmm. and I was selected 
because of my career, whatever you said, you know, selected me. And uh, they pay for everything, you know, airfare and getting all those, whatever they have to ask for. And uh, I came to Lusaka, that is the capital of Zambia. And then they transferred me to the Muflira, there is a town which is called Copper Belt. So I stayed there for all six years as an in charge of a workshop. And then you went back to New Delhi before you came to America? No. Uh, I had a chance to come to United States instead of going to India because it was going to be too costly. Mm. I had five children and me and my wife. Okay. So we all seven came together to America at one time, landed in New York, JFK. I see. Mm. What prompted you to come to America? Why not back to India? Okay, it was number one, from the beginning, my father was also a retired officer from the army. And uh, he had some knowledge that it is better to go abroad. So he was teaching us all the time, get education and go abroad. Okay. So I was always waiting for the opportunity to go abroad somehow. Okay. So when they interviewed me in New, New Delhi, uh, some of my friends said, oh, it's too much mosquitoes there, you know, there's nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. But still I wanted to go. I accepted that offer. Yes. And I, I came there. But there also, you could not have citizenship. You okay. can stay wherever, whatever, whatever time you want mm -hmm. to, as long they need you. Mm -hmm. But after that, you had to go. Okay. But it was good money. The, uh, their dollar was equal to two and a half dollars here. Ah, okay. So it, it, was, it was good money. And uh, I wrote to my mother, she was in India that time, okay. that if you want money, I can come back with the money. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of money, you know. I could have saved 50% of my salary. Mm. And then, or if you want me to stay abroad, I wanted to stay abroad. Okay. She said, go to America. So I resigned from the Zambian army before the second contract mm -hmm. and I came here. Uh, it was all the time I, I was very anxious to come abroad. Come abroad. Mm -hmm. I could have stayed in Zambia because I have three children from in Zambia. Oh, okay. and, but we were not allowed to stay there unless they need us. So this was the chance to come and find a job and stay in this country and get the citizenship. My father, uh, who is... Uh, U.S. Army uh, World War II veteran. He was drafted prior to Pearl Harbor in the Philippines uh, because he could read and write English and sort of speak it as well as type. So um, when MacArthur was putting together the uh, uh, United States Armed Forces in the Philippines, USAFI, uh, he was one of the people who was actually drafted into the American Army uh, and not the Philippine Constabulary or National Guard, as what they call it here in the United States. After World War II was over, he went back to uh, teaching in Manila City School. He was an industrial arts teacher. And at night, he would uh, be like a houseboy for the American officers who he had served with hmm. there. And he happened to see a magazine advertisement looking for Filipino nationals, since the Philippines had just gained independence, to work at the United Nations itself for the UN. So he filled in the application, mm -hmm. got recommendations there mm -hmm. from, from his officers we yeah. were serving with, 
and somehow was selected because mm-hmm. of the fact that you know he knew Spanish because that's what they taught in the Philippines back then, mm-hmm. as well as Tagalog, Visayan, and English. Like I said, mm-hmm. you know, with those qualifications that he had, he was selected to be an employee of the UN Secretariat here in New York. And like I said, at the time, it was still at Lake Success, which is just on the border of Queens and Nassau, and was working going to work back and forth between Parkway Village and there. And that's how he found a house that we later moved to in New Hyde Park, which mm-hmm. is right on just inside Queens, also on the border uh, of Queens and Nassau. And he was able to get that house because he had been a, a veteran on the GI Bill program. First thing he did when he got here was he registered with, with the VA mm-hmm. to get whatever benefits that, mm-hmm. you know, all the the soldiers coming back from World War II was getting. Mm-hmm. And and he did that in the early part of 1946 when he first got here. The Recession Act uh, passed by the U.S. Congress didn't pass until, I, I believe it was in November of 1946. Mm-hmm. So he more or less grandfathered into the program. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though he was a Philippine citizen at the time, he wasn't eliminated like all of the other the people after that who tried to get into the program who were U.S. Army veterans hmm. uh, that were denied you know, VA privileges because of the fact that they were now Philippine nationals. Then there was also the problem that most of the Filipinos were paid 50 cents on the dollar that, that American soldiers were paid. Not that American soldiers were paid that much, but the Filipinos even got less mm-hmm. than, mm-hmm. than what the, the American soldiers were getting for, you know, fighting the same war there in the Philippines. The chance that he had to go to work for the United Nations Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. was how he was able to come here. I don't think he had any particular drive to come to America. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think more of it was to work for the United Nations. In fact, when he got here, the uh, Philippine ambassador to the United Nations and the, at that time, president of the General Assembly was Carlos Romolo. He actually called my father on the carpet when he got here, asking him how did he get that job without his express written consent, because most of the the jobs here in New York were pretty much doled out to you know either political party members or to you know the rich families there in the Philippines. So they were wondering how this provincial from the barrios managed to uh, sneak past all of the normal procedures there for people coming here to the U.S. and get a job. Even though he was only clerk typist, it was still a pretty prestigious job to have, you know, for, for a Filipino to come here, you know, to America, let alone New York. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There, you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And, if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate, or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also 
to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here's a guiding question. What's a story you would want to tell about how you got to where you are now? Join us in the next episode on paperwork to think about how we decide who goes where and the papers we file to make those decisions legally binding. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast.